How many of you have heard of the problem of the one and the many? The problem of the one and the many is a, is a very ancient, ancient problem. And to describe what the problem of the one and the many is, it's, it's very simple for us to picture when we start to think about the world. As you take a look around you, one of the things that becomes evident very quickly are all of the different things that you take in with your five senses. You know, as you're sitting in this room, you are feeling certain things. Maybe it's too hot. Maybe it's too cold for you. You are smelling different things. Hopefully, they're, they're pleasant aromas, but you're probably smelling different things. You are hearing different things. Maybe it's a baby crying. Maybe it's, a, it's, a, it's the seat creaking underneath you. Maybe it's the sound of my voice coming over the microphone. You are seeing different things. You're seeing all the different people around you. You're, you're seeing the chairs, the floor, the, the building itself, the different color lights, the podium, the microphones, the instruments, all kinds of different things. And having just taken communion, finally, you're, you're also tasting different things. There was the, the almost tasteless taste of the, of the wafer and then the, the sweetness of the, of the juice. Diversity. Diversity. So many different things. And even though you can look around you and say, but I, I see a lot of the same thing, I see a lot of people around me, each of those individual people have an incredible amount of differences to each one of them, so that each of them are unique. That's the many. Now, here's the question that has plagued philosophy since its beginning, is this, what is the one thing that holds it all together? What is the one thing that makes sense out of all of the diversity? What is it that brings unity out of diversity? We often describe our world as a universe, and that word universe is really just the mashing together of two words, unity and diversity. We take for granted that there is something that unifies all of the different experiences that we have, that bring them together. We don't believe the world is random. We don't believe that everything just happens and there is no meaning to it. There is nothing to unify it. We believe that this world is a cosmos, not just chaos. You know, when we are up here, we are here just a few moments ago, we had the whole band up here, right? We have all the different instruments. We had Luke singing. We had him playing the keyboard. We had the drums, the bass, the guitar, all of them working together, right? Now, was it just a cacophony of noise to you? Was it just a bunch of sounds randomly coming at you? Of course not. There was a melody weaved through all of it, and then there was harmony amongst the instruments. There was something that held the noise together and made it intelligible. What is it that does that to the entire universe? 
That's the question. That's the problem of the one and the many. Now, this, just, this isn't just some abstract philosophical concept. It is, the, it is a issue that has plagued societies for all generations. In 1776, a committee was formed in the United States to create a seal that would be the seal for 13 colonies who had just declared their independence from the empire of England. And this committee was, ta- was tasked with coming up with a seal that represented all 13 of their, these colonies with different agendas, with different populations, with different uh, uh, goals and motivations for why they were declaring independence. And this committee was tasked with coming up with a seal that would make these united states. And one of the members on the committee, a gentleman by the name of Pierre de Sumitre, came up with a, a part of the seal. He came up with the, with the motto that would be emblazoned on the bottom of that seal or in the, in the banner that would be on the seal. And the motto that he came up with is something that you can find or you used to be able to find jingling around in the pockets of most people. Most people don't carry around change in their pockets anymore. But it used to be that if you reached into your pocket, you could pull this out and you could look at it. And it was the phrase, e pluribus unum, out of many, one. And they picked that phrase because they knew that unless these 13 colonies came together and unified around something, there was no hope of defeating the might of the powerful British Empire. But what is it, ultimately, that brings unity out of diversity? On the night before He was crucified, Jesus found Himself in the upper room with His disciples. And of course, He's very concerned at this moment about His disciples. He is about to go to the cross. They are about to be scattered. And He prays for them. And he prays this in in John chapter 17, verse 11. He says this, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And then he extends this prayer far beyond his disciples to you and me. And he says this in verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Jesus' emphasis here, His prayer for the church on the night before He was crucified, was that the church would be unified, that the church would be one. 
And he gives a purpose for it. It's not just unity for the sake of unity. He gives a purpose for this unity. And he says this, that the world may believe. That the world may know. Now imagine the importance of this. The next day, Jesus is going to die. And then three days later, he will rise again. And after that moment, the gospel will go out into all of the world. There will be a church made up of every tongue, of every tribe, made up of Jews and Greeks and Chinese and French and Roman and Gaulish and American, and Ukrainian, and Russian. There will be men and women in this church. There will be slaves and free in this church. There will be kings. There will be rich. And there will be poor. What is it that will bring, diverse, bring unity in the midst of this great and glorious diverse church. Paul's letter to the Romans that we've been studying now for, for months and months gives us the basis for that unity throughout the entire book. It's the gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amongst all the diversity of the church, Paul explains to us that we share some things that are in common. We share these things in common, that we are all sinners, and that we are all saved by grace in Jesus Christ and by Jesus Christ. That's the basis for our unity. And so for the first eight chapters, we read all about the gospel of Jesus Christ that applies to each and every one of us. And then for Three verses, three chapters, Paul goes into a, a little aside about, uh, about God's sovereignty and all this process and how He is involved sovereignly over who is saved and, and why they are saved and His purposes in salvation. And then back in verse chapter 12, Paul brings us back to the implications of our unity. And as we've read over the past several weeks, Paul has given us some some particular passages that are helpful to understanding how this unity works. What does it mean? And so, as we look back at uh, uh, chapter 12, verses 4 through 5, we read passages like this. For as in one body there are many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ. We are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. We are all unified in the body of Christ. That's what Paul talks about in, in chapter 12 here. And then he continues about how we do this. How do we stay unified as one body in Christ? Well, he tells us in, chapter, in verse 10 there, he says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And then he says this in verse 16, he says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. 
humility is going to play a very important role in our unity. And then he said this, and Pastor Seth talked about this last week. In chapter 13, verses 8, he says, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. We're going to come back to that theme of loving one another. But those are Paul's guardrails for how unity is achieved within the church. How do we stay as one body? Honor one another, humility, love one another, serve each other. See, the law of love that Paul or that Seth talked about last week requires a desire for unity within the church. It requires a desire for unity within the church, not for the sake of unity alone, not just to be nice to one another, but what was Jesus' purpose? So that the world may know, so that the world may believe in Him. Now, the issue of diversity and unity is no less profound in our day, is it? It's no less profound to to try to understand with clarity how can we be unified in the world today. With the advent of the information age, this question arguably becomes even more important. I remember the day when I walked into my uh, 11th grade marketing class at Bellevue West High School in Nebraska, and my teacher, my marketing professor, walked the class over to the computer lab, and he, he gave us a sheet of paper, and on the sheet of paper was something called a login with a password. And we all sat down there at the computer, and we typed in this login onto the computer screen, and we, we uh, typed in our password, and there we were able to pull up you know, a, a computer portal there and, and click on Internet Explorer. And as we opened up Internet Explorer, I remember my marketing professor from the front of the room saying, welcome to the information age. Well, somewhere in the 20 years that has passed since I was welcomed into the information age, we have entered the opinion age where anyone can get on the Internet usually anonymously, and share their opinions about whatever they want, whenever they want. And you know, there's an old saying that goes with opinions, that they're like armpits. Everybody has them, and they usually stink, don't they? Well, today we're going to try to give you, hopefully, some some spiritual deodorant, you know. (laughs) How do we prevent our opinions from stinking? from becoming odorous to the world around us, from becoming odorous to one another. I know most of us, if you're like me, uh, and she's going to hate this analogy, but I have to rely on my wife for that. You know, there's a lot of things that I want to type out on the internet and put my opinions out there, and she has to be like, no, no, you got to pull that one back, pull that one back. You know, I'm sure most of us can identify with that from time to time. But here's what we're going to learn today as we look at chapter 14. In dealing with opinions... Unity does not require uniformity. 
The goal is not to conform each one of us into images of each other. The goal is to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so unity does not require that we all look the same, act the same, and believe the same, except when it comes to the most important core issues, without which there is no unity. But let's read the text and let's take a look at this. Let's see how Paul addresses this question in the church at Rome. So we read this in in chapter 14. As for the one who is weak in faith, we'll come back to that, welcome him. But do not quarrel, we'll come back to that as well, over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand." One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that He might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, there are some terms to define, I think, at the outset of this passage as we begin to explore it a little bit deeper. First, there is the term weak in faith. Paul talks about a Christian brother who is weak in faith. We need to identify who is weak in faith, and what does that mean? Then he talks about quarreling, okay? We know what is quarreling? Is there a difference between quarreling and offering Christian advice or even disagreeing with somebody or even, you know, confronting somebody when you think they may be in the wrong? So we need to talk about that. And then what's an opinion? Because this, what Paul is talking about here relates to opinions, not to all things. Now, Paul also gives two examples here that are, that are really important uh, for his context, especially, that we're going to need to apply to our context. We're not going to typically have the same kinds of issues that Paul was having in his day, but we have plenty of issues that this applies to in our day. And so, the two issues that Paul talks about in particular are eating or what we would think of now maybe as the dietary restrictions of the old covenant, how those applied to the people who he was speaking to, 
and also the days of observances. You know, what days are holy? When do I need to, do I need to observe the Sabbath any longer? How do I understand these things? You know, that's what Paul is concerned with. This is largely a Jewish church becoming a world church. And so, Paul is addressing specific issues that would have come up in his day where there would have been disagreements or opinions about how we should function within this new church. And so, while those might not be directly applicable to many of the things we end up discussing, there is an application that we have to get to in our day. So, let's talk about what it means to be weak in faith. That's a term that Paul uses here. Who, is, who are these brothers that are weak in faith? Who are they? Well, in particular, who Paul is talking about in context, those who are weak in faith could be described as this. They have strong convictions about issues that are less than salvific. So they have very strong convictions about the way things should be done. But these convictions do not rise to the level, at least in Paul's mind, and we, we, his mind, I think, here is the mind of Christ. They don't rise to the level of being issues that we should divide over. Usually, they would be issues of tradition or issues over which most people in most contexts would have liberty over would have freedom to decide for themselves what they think is right and what they think is wrong. And so the two examples that we've already discussed would be one, eating or drinking. So in Paul's day, you can imagine the Jewish community who, who lived in that day, who had for most of their lives adhered to the strict dietary laws found in the Old Covenant who are now integrating into their communities people who were Gentile in nature just days before, just weeks before, years before, who had different standards about what they could eat. You can imagine the tension that would arise within those communities. In addition to that, in many of these cities where Paul is preaching, you'd go into the marketplace and you, you could buy meat from the marketplace where most of it if not all of it, had been sacrificed in a pagan temple. And the question would arise in that context, is that okay? Are these animals who are being sacrificed to pagan gods, can I eat that? And you'd have the one guy over here who would say, it's just meat. These pagan gods, they're nothing. And I can eat whatever I want. I'm free in Christ to eat whatever I want. And then you would have those who were more scrupulous than that, and they would think that, no, 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 no. That's, I'm not even going to associate myself with anything that is demonic in nature, that's evil in nature, that's sacrificed to these false gods. And so I refuse to eat that. I'm going to eat only vegetables. And you can see very quickly how differences of opinions would arise within the church about how do we handle this issue. Or we can look at the, the days, the, the, the days of worship. Should we celebrate the Passover every year like we did under the Old Covenant? Should we celebrate the Feast of Booths? Should we look at, you know, do we have to, you know, do no work on the Sabbath as under the Old Covenant? 
Or should we even be worshiping on the Sabbath, on Saturday or Sunday? You can quickly see how these kinds of issues could develop strong opinions amongst the various parties, depending on where they had come from in their life, depending on the experiences they had grown up with. And these opinions could start creating rifts, could start creating divisions. Now, the brother who is weak in faith, as Paul describes him here, is the one who holds to these strong convictions. There's just no getting around that. Paul says, look, if 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 you don't want to eat meat sacrificed to idols, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's nothing wrong with eating meat sacrificed to idols. It's nothing. You're free to do that if you don't feel conscious bound not to do it. Paul affirms the view that meat sacrificed to idols is just meat. Okay? But if you have strong convictions about that, that's fine. And he's going to go on to describe to this group, and we'll look more about this next week, about how... Uh, those who have strong convictions about this should not violate their own convictions, that it would be sinful, in fact, for them to, to violate their own convictions. But he describes them as the weaker brother, those whose faith is not strong enough to overcome their personal scruples about this particular issue, that otherwise a person has liberty to decide for themselves. They're described as the weaker brother. And there are likely issues all of us face, all of us have, where we have personal scruples that are appropriate for us, and perhaps they've developed out of real consequences or real circumstances that we have in our own lives that may not be a similar situation for another person where it's appropriate for us to hold a certain conviction where it might not be appropriate or might not be necessary for someone else to hold that conviction. We'll talk about some of those situations here in a little bit. But there's likely some sense in which we're all the weaker brother or the weaker sister in Christ. So we'll we'll talk about that more in a little bit. But here is the, the other definition that we need to cover, and that's what's quarreling. What's quarreling? Because what quarreling does not mean is that we shouldn't engage on these issues, that we shouldn't have discussions about these issues. Of course we should. Okay? So, quarreling is not discussion. We don't, as Christians, we are reasonable people. We are reasonable people, and so as reasonable people, we engage in reasonable discussion about issues of which there is doubt, or which we may need to hear other input from other people on, or we may have helpful input for them. We always are free to engage in reasonable discussion with others. So quarreling is not about reasonable discussion. It's not about giving advice. If you see somebody who's doing something that you think is unwise, even though it may fall into the realm of liberty, you're free to go and give them advice about how you think they should handle that issue. This isn't about giving advice. This isn't even about confrontation. You may think someone is is seriously wrong about something. And you may feel, even though the Scripture doesn't say plainly and openly, you cannot do this, you may feel very strongly, I need to go confront this brother or sister in Christ about this issue. That's not quarreling. What Paul is talking about here is about arguing 
so as to be divisive, insisting on your own way. I remind us of what we just read a few moments ago in Romans chapter 12, verses 16. The person who is quarreling, I think, is violating what the advice Paul just gave a little while ago when he said this, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Okay. See, there's a way of confronting people. There's a way of giving advice where it comes from a place where you are wise in your own eyes, and either they agree with you or else there's definitely something wrong with them because you have set yourself up as the standard of wisdom. And that's where the problem comes in. That's what quarreling is really about. So avoiding it requires humility. So here's what we... Here's what we have to think about. How do we stay unified as Christians in an age full of opinions? Well, here's the point. We welcome those whose opinions differ from ours. That's what Paul says. We welcome those whose opinions differ from our own. That's what he says in verse 14.1. He says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Welcome him. So let's get to the last definition we have to cover because this is kind of a dividing line issue. Welcome the one who has opinions who differ from yours. Well, what's an opinion? What's an opinion? What marks the line between those issues? We shouldn't quarrel over, we shouldn't fight over, that are opinions, and those that we should divide over, because there is a line. What marks that line? The reality is there are facts that are beyond dispute. There are facts that are beyond dispute to the extent that if you take away those things, what is it to be unified about? What are we unified around? If there's nothing, if there's no thing that ultimately provides unity. Paul has been laboring at this point for at least the first eight chapters of the book of Romans to give us those things around which we must find unity. And in the early church, from the earliest days of the early church, there were certain creeds, certain things that identified you as a member in the church at all. We can look through Scripture and we can find some of these earliest creeds taught just very clearly in Scripture. In Romans chapter 10, verses 9, we read one of those creeds. Paul talks about it. And he says this, it's, it's the most basic thing for a Christian, it's this, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That's basic. Anybody who disputes that falls outside of the community. They're outside of Christianity. That is the only way to be saved. Peter says in the book of Acts, in chapter 4, he says, 
There is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved than the name of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul continues and he says to the, he says to the Corinthians, therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit ever says Jesus is accursed. No one rejects Christ if they have the Spirit of God with them. No one. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And then in verse chapter 15 of, of Corinthians, Paul gives the great creed that would have been repeated certainly everywhere he went to share the gospel. And he always says this, For I delivered to you as a first of importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then He appeared to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, He appeared also to me. These things are beyond dispute. These things are the line that separate those who are in the church from those who are outside the church. If you take these away, what is left to provide unity? And so we can include some other things in this. Uh, I think those are the the absolute fundamental essentials, but we can include other things to this. We have commandments. Obviously, if the Bible clearly teaches thou shall not murder, that is not something that is open for debate. The Bible teaches thou shall not steal, that is not something that is open for discussion. We have the ordinances. We just took a few moments ago the the Lord's Supper together as a church, because Christ commands us to do it. We have baptism. We have the authority of God's Word. We have the Scriptures. Because if we can't agree what God's Word is, how do we unify? How do we unify? And then we have, as we learned last week, love. We have love. Love is a non-negotiable. We are called to love one another. We are called to love others because that is the commandments. You see, there is one fact that stands above all opinions. And it's this, Jesus is Lord. So what's an opinion? We just identified what isn't an opinion. What is an opinion? An opinion is any doubtful thing. Any doubtful thing, there are things that we can discuss, and they are within the realm of reasonable disagreement or difference. We've already talked about whether we eat meat sacrificed to idols, okay? 
Paul clearly has an opinion about that, but he also understands it's reasonable for a Jew coming out of having lived his entire life under the Jewish law, having scruples about what he should eat, to have a differing opinion. Okay? And there are lots of things that fall into this category. Here's a list of some of the, the major ones that we can think of just right here. Drinking alcohol. Drinking alcohol. The Bible does not command one way or another that we, can, we should either drink alcohol or that we should not drink alcohol. It gives some guidelines, it gives some commands. It says, do not be drunk. But in terms of enjoying a glass of wine, the Bible doesn't prohibit that. Of course it doesn't. But many people have very serious scruples about alcohol, don't they? I know when I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church, and I know in many Southern Baptist churches even to this day, alcohol is a, a big no-no, right? No, 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 no. You don't, you don't drink alcohol, at least if you do, you know, you don't want anybody to see you do it, you know? <laughs> but people have serious scruples about alcohol. And for good reason. Maybe they grew up in a home where there was an alcoholic father or an alcoholic mother. Maybe they've struggled with alcoholism. And so, we come to this issue and we see that people can have reasonable disagreements about how alcohol should be treated. And the rule that Paul applies is that if somebody has this issue, has this serious conviction about not drinking alcohol, we should respect that. We should welcome that brother or sister, all right? And we are to not despise them, but to welcome them. And they are not likewise to judge those who do drink, okay? What about gambling? about gambling? There's nothing in Scripture that says you can't go down and play in a poker game with your friends and bet money. Nothing that says it in Scripture. Are there rules? Are there guidelines about how we should handle money and handle the resources that God has given to us? Absolutely. But gambling is not some hard demarcating line where if you are suddenly, you know, having a, a, a game of blackjack in your, in your home with friends, then you're outside of the line, and I need to confront you about sin. That's not, Scripture doesn't handle it that way. What about smoking? What about tattoos? What about movies that we watch, right? People have strong convictions about movies that they watch. What about music that we listen to? What about hobbies? You know, some people like to play video games, and they will play lots of video games, and they'll buy all the new video game systems. Some people like sports or hunting. You know, there, are there any hard and fast rules about how Scripture says we must handle those kinds of activities? They are not. They are not. They are issues within Christian liberty. I mean, I don't know, the only thing I know certain in hobbies is that golf is the best sport, right, Seth? That's, that's, that's the only thing I know. It's the only godly sport. <laughs> I 
Marriage. Should I be married? Should I not be married? Paul actually gives specific advice about marriage in 1 Corinthians. He, he talks about marriage, and he talks about how it's perfectly good for somebody who doesn't desire to be married to not be married. And yet, at the same time, it's perfectly good for somebody who desires to be married to be married. These are issues within Christian liberty. Yet, people have very strong personal convictions about them, don't they? What about children? How many children should, should you have children at all? Do you, if you have children, how many should you have? People have very strong convictions about these issues. Oftentimes, based on really good reasons. Yet they are still issues that are often in doubt. And so they fall within this category that Paul is talking about here. How about money? How about how we spend our money? Some people here like to drive nicer cars than other people. How about politics? People have very strong convictions about politics. There are lots of opinions about politics. But ladies and gentlemen, politics is a very doubtful thing. So be careful what you divide over. Economic theories, clothing, where's the line of modesty versus immodesty, vaccinations, mask mandates. These are important issues. And I have not said we cannot discuss them. I have not said we cannot have uh, confrontations about them. Sometimes that's required. But do not be wise in your own eyes. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Theological issues can fall into this category as well. I listed off at the beginning of this those things which are absolutely beyond doubt. But there are other theological issues that are doubtful. Things that people can disagree over. Eschatology the mode of baptism, even Reformed theology. Now, do not get me wrong. I mean, this might be the one area where it might inform where you decide to go to church. But I believe my Presbyterian brothers and sisters who are just down the road, who baptize their infants, I will not divide over that issue, and I will celebrate that they worship Christ over there and that they are inside the household of God. So how do we deal with opinions well? Let me give six rules as quickly as I can about how we do this well. Rule number one, there are a lot of things that are not inherently sinful. A lot of things, okay? Where you send your kids to school, whether you choose public school or whether you do homeschooling, not inherently sinful either way. Having a glass of wine for dinner, not inherently sinful either way. Wearing a bikini at the beach, not inherently sinful either way, okay? Buying a nice car, not inherently sinful either way. Eating meat or vegetables, not inherently sinful either way. There is liberty 
in those things. There is liberty, a profound sense of liberty in Christ. Yet, here's the second rule. Many things are sinful to some people because of their conscience. Many things are sinful because of conscience. And as a result of that, even things that are not inherently sinful can be sinful for two reasons. One, if you believe them to be sinful because of your conscience, and you do it anyways. That's one. Two, you know someone else believes it's sinful, and you do it in their presence. And Pastor Seth's going to talk about that a lot next week. And you try to encourage them to do something that's sinful, that they, at least their conscience believes is sinful. So there are two dangers there. So conscience can make something sinful that is not otherwise sinful. Now, here's the other thing. The conscience cannot make something that is, uh, that is sinful not sinful, all right? Just because you don't feel bad about it or just because you feel personally convicted doesn't mean you, can't, you can steal, right? Or, or you can watch that movie that you know has those scenes in it or you can watch that series that you know has those scenes in it. Oh, well, it doesn't affect me. All right. There are some lines here. There are some things, some boundaries that you can cross. Where that is, I'm not going to say <laughs> in every situation. But there are lines, and you know it. Here's the next rule. The strong is to bear with the weak, not change them. Not change them. It's not your job to convince everybody that everybody can drink alcohol, right? Or that everybody should wear the type of clothing that you wear. Or even that everybody should have the exact same political opinions that you do, all right? It's not your job. That doesn't mean you can't have discussions about those things. That doesn't mean you can't give advice about those things. I encourage that. We are reasonable people, and we handle discussions like reasonable people. But it's not your job to change them. We're not seeking conformity with ourselves, We're all seeking to be conformed to Christ. Number five, so that's that's the duty of the strong. So if you think you're strong in one area, that's your duty. All right, if you're weak, don't violate your own conscience while simultaneously not judging somebody else or don't judge somebody else who is free in that area, who doesn't feel as convicted as you in that area. That's your duty. All right? If you have personal convictions about alcohol, or if you have personal convictions about which music people should be listening to, or if you have personal convictions about the line of modesty, follow your convictions. Paul says in in verse uh, 5 here, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Follow your convictions there without judging your fellow servants. And number six, finally, unity is the goal. And what unity requires, ladies and gentlemen, is for us to have some self-reflection about our own goals. What is really our goal for holding the convictions that we hold? What are we really trying to accomplish with our convictions? Why do we really have them? You see, the substance of your opinions on doubtful things is important. I'm not saying it's not important, but it's less important than the heart behind it. 
The substance of your opinions is less important than the heart behind it. So what is the right heart? What is the right heart that we're all striving for? Well, as I just said, in verse 5, Paul says this, each one should be convinced in his own mind, okay? So be fully convinced in your own mind. But in verse 6, he gives this qualification. Here's what he says. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of who? The Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of who? The Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of who? The Lord, and gives thanks to God. In verse 7, he says this, for none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. So ask yourself this question about your opinions. Why do I hold them? Is it to honor God? Is that truly my motivation? Or is it to honor myself? Is it to honor myself? You see, oftentimes we hold our opinions on things so strongly and we will defend them so vigorously because if our opinions are proved wrong on this one thing, do you know what? People might think differently about me. They might not think that I'm right in everything that I say. And we're really just defending our own, our own uh, 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 ego. Thank you. <laughs> and not the opinion itself. So are you trying to distinguish yourself before men? Or are you honoring Christ? With your opinions. Paul concludes with this in verses 10 through 4, 12. He says this, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God, so that each of us will give an account of himself to God. You see, one thing that we have to get into our minds, we have to understand, is that your brother in Christ does not owe his final accounting to you. He owes it to God. And so do you. And so do you. And what He has called us to do, what He has told us we must do is be unified. Be unified around the gospel of grace. And being unified around the gospel of grace means at times we must put aside our own opinions on doubtful things and work together for the kingdom of Christ. Paul reminds us in verse 4, in a similar way, he says this, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. You see, if you want to really be the stronger brother, have faith. There are people who are going to differ from you. 
and they're going to be wrong. But who makes them stand? Is it you? Are you going to take that responsibility of changing everyone's mind to make sure that they agree with you? Are you going to have faith in God who makes all of us stand? It's God who starts the work in believers, and it's God who finishes it. So here's your takeaway. Christian liberty is profound and extends to most areas of life. It extends to most areas of life. Most of what we do falls within the realm of Christian liberty. But there is no liberty outside of obedience to Christ. There is no liberty outside of obedience to Christ. And Christ commands unity. And if we operate on that basis, we can trust that Christ will save His people and change us, and change our stinky opinions into ones that are a fragrant aroma. It is the Lordship of Christ that provides the melody within the church and in which we all operate in harmony. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You are such a good God. You are such a good God. You provide clarity to Your people, not through abstract principles, not through things that are high for us, too high for us to see or understand, but in the person and work of, a per, of a Jesus Christ. We get to see what You desire through Your Son. We get to see what unity looks like with you. It's your son who said, I, I don't want to do anything. I can't do anything unless I see my father doing it. Lord, and I pray that we as a people will have the same mind that he had. A mind that desires nothing else but to serve you. And a mind that trusts you. That when we serve you daily... You will accomplish everything. You'll accomplish everything that we could ever hope for. You'll accomplish everything that we could ever desire. That you will strengthen us in that faith so that we can welcome all people into the household of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.